once again, good morning. It is great to be with you all this morning. It is a blessing to have a relatively warm sanctuary to come into on a Sunday morning. It's in fact a little too warm while the temperature is in the teens outside. So I'm glad you made it out today despite the frigid weather. It's not as bad as everyone said. It's a precious thing for the people of God to gather together for worship every Sunday and certainly on the very last Sunday of 2017. The next time we see each other will be next year. This year, I feel like it's so quickly flown by. I've heard that the older you get, the faster your perception of time goes. In childhood, the anticipation of things throughout the year, it makes it like a drag, like you're awaiting everything, but time is moving so slowly. When is it gonna be winter? When is it gonna be spring? When is it gonna be summer break? When is it gonna be fireworks? When is it gonna be fall? In adulthood, it seems to be the opposite, that even though you know you're so busy and so much happens in your life and you have so many cares and responsibilities, in your life personally, in the world around you, the year just seems to blow by so quickly. I'm astounded that as I look back exactly one year ago, transitioning from 2016 to 2017, watching the ball drop and the subsequent days, wrapping up the church finances of the previous year, preparing a budget for 2017, having Dan Lisa preach the opening sermon of the year on suffering from 2 Corinthians. All of that seems like it wasn't very long ago, like it just happened. And from what I'm told, it just keeps getting faster and faster while we live this life. I want to ask you a question today related to that. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid of death? And that's not meant to be an emotionally manipulative question. It's not meant to dazzle you or scare you into a greater level of Christian commitment or instill a faithless type of fear in you. If you want that kind of preaching, you can go to a fundamentalist church. I can recommend some in the area if you are so inclined. But honestly, I want to ask us, and ask myself included, are you afraid to die? Our text this morning, Hebrews 2, talks about death and the fear of death. And I want us to consider for the duration of this sermon the problem of death. And I want you to know and understand what Christ did to deal with the problem of death and consequently what he did to deal with the fear of death. My hope is that if you're a believer here this morning, that you might understand better what Christ accomplished to defeat death and to remove from us the fear of death. If you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a believer, I'm especially glad that you're here this morning. I want you to understand what Jesus Christ did to deal with the problem of death and how he did it. My earnest hope, if you're not a believer, is that as you hear the preaching that God would create faith in your heart, that from your very soul you would say, I want this to be true. I affirm that this is true. I believe in Jesus. And maybe that won't even happen this morning, but I pray that in God's time it would. So we've already read the first part of Hebrews chapter 2, for our scripture reading, and I want to summarize it and contextualize it for you. You see, the problem with the Hebrew Christians that the author is writing to in this letter is that they are evidently prone to leave aside the centrality of the Christian faith. And so the writer is systematically reminding them about the centrality and the supremacy of Christ. He says in the first chapter, 
Christ is greater than the angelic beings. Don't, don't seek for your guardian angel. Don't try to be touched by an angel. Don't lose the gospel. Don't go back into the law of Moses. You know, unfortunately, gospel faith is fragile. It's not natural. Once you have it, suddenly a hundred other things are vying for your attention. And he tells them that if the law of Moses issued punishment for those who violated it, think what judgment awaits those who neglect the message of salvation through the Son of God. Will they be spared? He then reminds them of the position of Christ, that Christ came as a man, lower than the angels. He died as flesh and blood, and so God has given him glory and honor. And one day, his complete dominion will be realized and celebrated by all his people. In the latter half of this chapter, he will focus specifically on why Christ took on humanity and what he accomplished as a result. And so uh, I want to read that for you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 10 through the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse number 10, going through the end. Let me read it for you. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children that God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I have three points this morning, and then we'll pray. Point number one, humanity and death. Point number two, the devil and death. Point number three, Christ and death. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we come before you looking into your word this morning. I pray that your word would speak for itself, that it would go forth in the power of your spirit. May the text be so clear. May all the power of this sermon come from the text. May the text be what is impressed upon the hearts and the minds of the hearers. I pray, Lord, that um, those who hear, that they would be able to reproduce the interpretation as they look at the text themselves. I pray that the frailty of the human messenger would not distract from the power of the word this morning, but may it go forth in the power of your spirit. May you do your work among your people um, this morning and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Are you afraid to die? In verse 15, the scripture describes humanity as those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. So this is point number one, humanity and death. Right away, this tells us some things about mankind or humanity and death. First of all, death is a certainty. Secondly, death is a fearful prospect. Thirdly, death is enslaving, right? Certain, it's fearful, and it's enslaving. When God created all things, he created a good and orderly world to be enjoyed forever by our first parents, Adam and Eve, and their subsequent descendants. Through Adam's sin against God's command, Scripture says in Romans 5 that sin came into the world through one man, and death came as a result of sin, and death spread to all men because all have sinned. I've heard death described as a separation. Physical death, the death of your physical body, is a separation of the physical part of you from the non-physical part of you. you. You believe that, right? That you're material and immaterial. I hope you do. Um, the, the part of you that's flesh and blood, the material part of you, separates from the part of you that's not flesh and blood. That is a certainty for all mankind. The founding father, Ben Franklin, is quoted as saying, in this world, nothing can be certain but death and taxes. Death is the great equalizer. Everyone will die someday. It matters not if they are a person of power or a nobody. It matters not if they're wealthy or poor, if they are good or evil, if they are man or woman. I remember watching 13 years ago the state funeral of President Ronald Reagan in 2004. There had been very few men in history who by any stretch of the imagination have wielded international power the way that President Reagan did. President Reagan presided over one of the largest peacetime buildups of the personnel, the technology, the lethal capability of the strongest military in human history. President Reagan knew the secrets of the world as they were availed to him. He commanded the demise of literal empires. And yet, in 2004, his body and his mind, having been deteriorated with Alzheimer's disease, he breathed his last, and at the young age of 93, he died just like anybody else. The founder and the inventor of Apple, billionaire Steve Jobs, faced his death after his long battle with prostate cancer in 2011 at age 56. Just last month, notorious killer and cult leader Charles Manson died in prison of heart failure, the same cause of death as renowned Catholic humanitarian Mother Teresa exactly two decades ago. Death is certain. It matters not who you are, what you are, where you're from, what you've done. Death is a certainty for all men and women. I have a church directory that I created on my computer as a spreadsheet. If you're a regular congregant of this church, you're in my spreadsheet. I look at it weekly. I read over all your names. I say to uh, myself, was so-and-so in church last Sunday? I haven't seen this person in a, in a while. I wonder how they're doing. So I, I, I think about you. I think good thoughts about you. I haven't seen this person in a while. Where are they? How are they doing? What's their address? So I can send them a bulletin. And I add new people to my spreadsheet all the time come up to you randomly if you're a new person, you've been coming here a few weeks, and say, hey, I need your address for my spreadsheet. I need to put you on my mailing list, and you'll give it to me, and I'll create a new line in my spreadsheet, and there you are. And there's something that I started doing a few years ago out of necessity. I had to start removing names from my spreadsheet as people passed away. And so I have a section in my spreadsheet, and this may sound creepy, I promise you, I'm not trying to be creepy, but I have a section that is called deceased, and in the last five years, I've put seven people on that list. Who are they? 
Jim Wilson, Jenny Walsh, Joseph Tamako, Kitty Heileman, Rose Cannell, Martin and Lucy Gus. Add to that our former pianist, Leah Erdos, and youth minister, Don Jones. Death is certain. There will come a time when I will move my last person into the deceased column on the spreadsheet, and I'll be next, and one of you will find the spreadsheet on my laptop or my phone, and hopefully you keep on with the tradition. Um, death also, not only is it certain, it is undignified. From watching TV and online commercials, you would get the impression that there's a whole industry formed around the idea of affording people dignity in death. Whether it's hospice care or legal counsel to put your estate in order, death is still going to be undignified. The physical process of death, whether it's a prolonged battle with a debilitating disease, a quick moment of organ failure or violent crime, there is no dignity in death, hardly so. You'll never completely be prepared for it. You've never satisfied every expectation you had for your life. You've never put your life completely in order. You've never had sufficient time with your friends and your loved ones and made as much of an impact as you wanted to. And that's because death is an enemy. It comes upon you as an enemy. That's why it's appropriate for people to grieve and have sorrow at funerals, because no matter how old a loved one is, how much suffering their body is racked with, how old they were, and how full their lives were, there's always pain and sorrow because death is an enemy. There's never an opportune time to die. I went to a funeral last week, and the minister said, I'm so sorry that we had to do this during the holidays. But you know, there's never a good time for a funeral. You could, your life could have been in the middle of inventing the next iPhone, in the middle of planning a family, in the middle of preaching the gospel as a missionary, investing into the lives of your grandchildren, completing the seventh grade, about to be engaged, or in any other stage of life, and death comes upon you and strips everything away. Death is an enemy. Death is also fearful. In verse 14, our scripture references the fear of death. Let me read it for you again. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is fearful. Scripture talks about the fear of death. You know, death... It's, it's a fearful prospect, and how so? Well, the Baptist expositor and commentator John Gill explains that the fear of death is seen in three ways. First, there's a process of dying. There's a suffering and the breakdown of the body through age or through some sort of disease. That's a fearful thing. How will my outer body break down? Secondly, he says there's a point of death, that when that separation occurs between flesh and blood and the immaterial part of you, Gill says, it's fearful. What will I experience? Will it be painful? Will there be physical pain? Will there, will there be emotional pain? Will my life flash before my eyes? Will it be scary? Will I feel anything? Will I be conscious of it? Finally, according to Gill, the third thing is that there's a penalty of death, the fear of what's awaiting on the other side, what's awaiting for someone in the afterlife? Is there punishment? Is there suffering? Gill says that we know that sin must be dealt with. Transgressions have to be paid. And so we have an uneasiness of what happens in the afterlife. And that's because besides physical death, there's something even more frightening. There's spiritual death. As physical death is the separation of body and soul, spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God forever. 
And Gill says that's the third thing that makes death a fearful prospect. So for these reasons, death is a fearful prospect because of the process of dying, the moment of death, and what comes after death. In our lives, we all have fears that may paralyze us, some rational, some irrational. I, I don't understand those of you who are scared of spiders or something, if you are um, arachnophobia or whatever, you know, you see these talk shows like Dr. Phil and people have all these irrational fears. I've never understood those, but I have my own paralyzing fears. Let me share an illustration with you. You know, some Sunday afternoons, pastor's daughter, Emma, will constantly ask me if I could show her some of the secret and scary rooms of the church. I think that's the, that's the prerogative of any pastor's kid exploring an old church building, and she's especially fascinated with the church basement. Now, I suspect it's because she found out that's where I keep some of the reserved snacks. So one day, she convinced me to show her the basement, and I said, Emma, it's pretty scary down there. And she announces, I I'm not scared. I'm not scared of anything. So we proceeded to go down to the basement. We get halfway down the stairs. And she says, VJ, could you hold me? I'm kind of scared. Now, it's, it's scary, I think, in the same aspects that death is scary, the process of going down there, finding where the light switches are. Are you going to fall on something? Are you going to trip on something? Are you going to step in a puddle? Are you going to encounter a mouse? Is the electricity going to work when you need it in the dark? The process is scary. Then there's a point at which you're down there in the basement. How many people here have been to the church basement? Just a show of hands? Okay. Maybe less than half. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. There's a point at which you're down in the basement. Is it going to be too cold? Is it going to be too hot? Are the pipes going to bang from the radiators? Is there a creature down there looking for you? I've always had this fear that something's going to jump out at me, and I know what it's going to be. It's going to be a rabid raccoon. I know that's what's going to happen. It, is the ceiling going to cave in on you as people run upstairs? Is the boiler going to explode? Are you going to get electrocuted? Is the steam pipe going to burn your face off? The point at which you are down there is scary. And then what comes after? Are you going to make it out of the basement alive? Are you going to find your way back? Can you properly retrace your steps, shut off all the lights in the proper order, and safely come back up the stairs? Yesterday, as I finished going through my sermon notes in the evening, I knew today was going to be a freezing day, so I needed to check the water level in the boiler, drain it a bit, ensure that's ready for today, but I didn't want to go down to the basement. Now, Emma's five, I'm 37, and I admit that it still freaks me out a bit. And I know this building like the back of my hand. I, I would venture to say I know this building probably better than anyone in this room, and it still makes me uneasy. So you know what I did? I took my laptop, I played music loudly on my laptop, and left it in the basement while I ventured into the boiler room. I have no idea what that did or how that helped me, but it provided a distraction so that as I drained the boiler a bit, I could hear YouTube playing on my laptop and it provided some semblance of a distraction. How does the fear of death enslave us? Death is enslaving. Verse 15 says, that the fear of death kept humanity in lifelong slavery. What does this mean? The Greek word that is used here 
is used five other times in the Bible. Every time it refers to being in bondage to this fallen natural state of this world or to be in bondage to the precepts of religion. So for example, talking about slavery, Romans 8 uses that word for it says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Another verse in Romans 8, using the same word, slavery, it says that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Or it refers, as I said, to man-made religious ritual. As Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 5, Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So that word is used in two different ways, in bondage to the natural state of this world or in bondage to the precepts of man-made religion. So which is it in Hebrews 2? I think it's both of them. The fear of death enslaves us to both the natural fallen world and religious ritual. Scripture says that humanity is in bondage to the fear of death. One very plausible understanding is that we are aware of our impending death someday, and in order to afford our conscience some semblance of preparedness, man devises, adopts, or affirms some type of belief system, some ritual, some religious affirmation to try to assuage the fear of death, to convince oneself that by adhering to some precepts, or wisdom, or philosophy, or deeds, or teaching, or code of conduct, that the process of death will be peaceful, the point of death will be painless, and the penalty of death will be prevented. Another way the fear of death enslaves is through avoidance and distraction, quite like me having my laptop playing YouTube in the basement as loudly as possible so that I can be distracted from the fear of being down in the big scary basement. Uh, that's how the fear of death enslaves us. It enslaves us to avoid it and distract ourselves. We avoid thinking about it. We distract ourselves from it. John Piper says that this is a form of slavery. Let me read from Piper. I thought this was really good how he wrote about this. I'm talking about avoiding and distracting yourself from the, from the concept of death. He says, therefore, even for people who deny the reality of such a God, death is terrifying. This doesn't mean that most unbelieving people lead consciously terrified lives. It means that they are enslaved by the fear of death to find ways not to feel the intolerable fear that they have. That is, the fear of dying is natural for sinful people who are not ready to meet God that it rules them like a silent master who takes many forms. The main form is the dream world of their denial. Most people simply do not let themselves think about what is absolutely inevitable, namely their own death. They are driven consciously or unconsciously to shut their eyes and close their ears and blank their minds to every thought that they are going to die and give an account to God. And this is a form of slavery to the fear of death. They would say that they are not afraid, but the fact is the fear has gone underground and enslaves from the subconscious. I think that's really good. Two ways of dealing with the fear of death, religiosity or avoidance and distraction. 
Point number two, the devil and death. Scripture says in verse 14 that Christ came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So we need to talk about that. In what sense does the devil have the power of death? I think perhaps some of us have absorbed this caricature that God and Satan are equal forces of good and evil, that they're in direct competition with each other, that God is trying to do good in your life and Satan is trying to upend the good and do evil in your life. This is incorrect if you believe that. For God and Satan are not on equal footing, nor is Satan the equally powerful opposition of God. Nor is it true that Satan rules over hell and is in control of hell and awaiting people as they come into hell. This is just not true. Scripture never even alludes to anything like that. We know from other parts of Scripture that God holds the power of life and death. Jesus says that he has the keys of life and death. Only God is sovereign over the day of our death. In the book of Job, in order to harm Job, Satan needed to receive the permission of God. He could only touch Job inasmuch as God permitted him to do so. Satan does not hold the ultimate power of death. When someone dies, it's not because Satan finally killed them. That's not what's taught in this verse. So in what sense does Satan have the power of death? That's what scripture says. He who has the power of death, namely the devil. I think the way I would explain this verse is like this. Satan wields the power of death against mankind. Think about it like this. Let's say you're in college or you're in grad school. In order to graduate with your degree, you have to write your final paper, your thesis, your dissertation, whatever it is. You try to buckle down for a while. You have a month to accomplish it. But you're never able to do so because you have a friend that consumes an inordinate amount of your time and attention. Your friend always wants to go out partying, clubbing, drinking, dancing. Your friend is always upset and angry and questioning your loyalty if you decline to go. So you constantly give in. For the entire month that you should have been working on your thesis paper, you have been out partying with your friend, fulfilling their whims and their demands. Until that very last day, when the paper was due, you stagger into your apartment tired and sick and intoxicated, and you collapse on your bed, having ignored the three emails and texts from your professor and advisor. Consequently, you fail, and you don't get your degree. Did your friend have the ultimate power of failure? No. Is your friend ultimately responsible for your failure? No, you're, you're responsible for that. Did your friend wield their power over you in such a way that you missed the deadline? Yeah. And this is how I think we're supposed to understand the role of Satan in death. It's not that Satan himself is doing the work of killing humanity, but that he wields a level of power against us so that we might not get to the deadline to death and be prepared for it. Verses that show this. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's John 8. 
Um, First John chapter three, verse 12, John writes, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explains, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown into his heart. First uh, Peter 5.8, Peter says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Second Corinthians 4, Paul says, In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see the work of Satan in these different ways, that he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he manipulates, he procures hatred in men's heart, he distracts from the word of God before someone even has the chance to think about it. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving, he seeks to destroy those who are believers. In all of these objectives, if he can just get you to die in your sins, or to have accomplished nothing in your life for the Lord, then it's mission accomplished for him. And I think that's how we're supposed to understand this. Not that Satan holds the ultimate power of life and death, but that he wields the power of death against you because he knows you're going to die. And if he can get you to that point without Christ or having done nothing for Christ, then it's mission accomplished for Satan. That's his role his connection to death. And thanks be to God that he has done something about the problem of death. Last point, Christ and death. What did God do to rescue us? Let me read verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, here's what he did. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In these two verses, verse 14 and 15, I think we see four things that Christ has done. He descended, he died, he destroyed, and he delivered. They all come from the text there. So first of all, Christ descended. Scripture says that because the children that God wanted to redeem are flesh and blood. If Christ was going to deliver us, he had to become one of us. God came in human flesh. We believe that God became a man. We do not believe that Christ's body was an illusion or a temporal manifestation or an avatar or a special appearing. We believe that God came in human flesh. Philippians 2 says that Jesus Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Um, we said humanity faces the problem of death. In order to solve this problem for us, God had to first enter into humanity. He did so by becoming a man. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is about the incarnation of the Son of God into human flesh. Secondly, first he, he descended. Secondly, he died. God's divine nature is indestructible. God cannot die. That's why he had to come as a man, so that he could die. Think about that. 
the God who is the author of life. Peter says in Acts to the crowd of the Jews, he says, you killed the author of life. What a mind-boggling statement. They killed the author of life. We killed the author of life. You and I killed the author of life. God, who is the source of all life, who upholds all life, subjected himself to death so that Peter could say in Acts, you killed the author of life. Philippians says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. The most wretched death, the most shameful death, the most humiliating and public and stigmatized type of death, that is what Christ took on in our behalf. Christ became a human so that he can die for humans. The purpose of Christmas is to get us to Easter. Thirdly, he destroyed. Through his death, Jesus defeated Satan. Christ has secured the ultimate victory. Colossians 2 says, Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. Christ took away the devil's ability to wield the power of death any longer. And we will see in a moment how that happens when we get to verse number 17. But finally, to finish up this section, he delivered us. It's the fourth thing. Apart from Christ, we are held in slavery to the fear of death, dealing with it by religious works or avoidance or some combination of both. And Christ frees us from that enslaving fear. Here's how he does that. Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For it is surely not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Okay, that includes us, not just the biological children of Abraham. You too are included in that if you are in Christ. Galatians says that we belong to Christ and are children of Abraham through faith. So if you possess the faith that Abraham had, then you're a child of Abraham. So look at verse 17. This is how... He does it. The 17 is a parallel to verse 14. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That includes you if you're in Christ. How did Jesus become like us? Well, he took on flesh and blood, verse 14 says. He became like his people, the ones he wanted to redeem, he became flesh and blood. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's it. That's why he took on flesh and blood. That's how he defeated Satan and delivered us from death. As a priest, he sacrificed himself to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. Propitiation is a big theological word. What it means is satisfaction. We sang this this morning in the hymn, In Christ Alone. Verse two says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. That is propitiation. It means the wrath of God was satisfied. That God's hatred and eternal outrage for sin, which should have fallen on you and I, found vent, found satisfaction, found completion in crushing, in destroying, in killing, in abandoning, in forsaking Christ on the cross. Every sin on him was laid. That's propitiation. And verse 17 says that that is how Jesus accomplished what he 
wanted to. He became like his brothers, like you and I, with flesh and blood, so that as a faithful high priest, he might make propitiation for the sins of his people. What sacrifice did he offer unto God? He offered the sacrifice of his own body hung and dying on a cross. That's how Christ defeated and disarmed Satan and delivered us from death and the enslaving fear of death. Christ did not stay dead. He was buried and rose again three days later. Verses 7 and 9 of Hebrews 2 say that he was crowned with glory and honor. Verse 10 says that his objective was to bring many sons to glory. On the cross, all your sin was dealt with. If you're in Christ, there is no unpaid sin which can damn your soul. Christ has paid it all. For the believer, death now becomes the pathway to eternal life. I want to be clear that this is the privilege of the believer, of the children of God, not the religious, not the morally perfect, not the self-disciplined, not the altruistic. This belongs to believers, those who have repented of their sins, repented of trusting in themselves, and have placed their faith in Christ in his death and resurrection. Death is still an enemy whose ultimate demise will one day be accomplished. But until that day, we need not fear death because Christ has paid it all. There's no sin left in your life that you have ever committed, you are committing now, will commit that if you are in Christ, there is no sin that will damn your soul. Maybe you've heard this whole message now and you agree with everything. When you're a believer, to the best of your capability, you have wholeheartedly trusted in Christ and his perfect work. You rely not on your works, but on him alone. And yet, you are often unsettled and fearful about the prospect of death. It, it all freaks you out. The process of it, the point of it, what's waiting on the other side. You possess, or rather, you are possessed by the fear of death. You wonder... Is my faith therefore genuinely real? If so, why do I still fear? If I'm a Christian, why do I fear? What would I say to you? You know, many preachers might say something like this. If you really believe the Lord, then you wouldn't fear death. I wouldn't say that. If you're a believer, I would not say that to you. Let me give you an illustration, and hopefully this will be helpful. You might have heard some variety of this, but mine is a true story. In the spring of 2011, over six years ago, I went on a trip uh, to the coffee farms of Colombia. I had a great time there. I learned a lot um, in the course of the one week that I was in Colombia. And on the way back from Colombia, I had the worst flight experience of all the traveling I've ever done in my life. We flew first from Colombia, Colombia to Panama, which was fine, and then from Panama to JFK. Now, on the descent into New York, we experienced a frightening range of thunderstorms. It was nearly an hour-long stretch of scary turbulence and a very uneasy flight. That night, ironically, was May 21st, 2011, the day that false prophet Harold Camping predicted for the third or fourth time the end of the world. And I remember flying in that plane on the descent to JFK thinking, Harold Camping was wrong and I'm going to die on this plane. 
right? And at landing, me and the Panamanian lady that was next to me assumed the brace position, right? It's like, it's like this. And I, I honestly do not remember if we were advised to do it or if she and I uh, just simply had no confidence in the landing of the plane. But I know that we were both bracing for impact because as soon as the plane landed, I remember our hands were on the top of the next chairs and we grabbed each other's hands. And the plane landed with the most violent impact I've ever felt on a landing. Obviously, made it out alive. I'm standing before you today. And, and the plane swerved on the runway, jerking us um, in our seats. And so we, we grabbed each other's hands. And then we were embarrassed that we did so. Oh, no. What's going on here? And, and, you know, I'm usually a really comfortable flyer. But that flight was scary. And while I was scared, I know that there were people on the flight who slept through all that. The plane landed, they unbuckled their seatbelt, it taxied to the gate, and they got off the plane completely at ease, relaxed, unaware of the terror that me and my Panamanian friend had endured. I, I want to ask you a question. When that plane got to JFK, who landed more safely? Me or the person who was sleeping? Think about that for a moment. Who made it to JFK more safely? You might say the sleeping man made it more safely because he was rested and at ease the whole time. He had a greater faith in the plane than I did. You might say me, because when I made it to JFK, my appreciation for a safe landing would have been so much greater after encountering the fear of the flight. But the correct answer is neither. Neither one made it more safe and secure than the other. Both are equally safe and secure landing at JFK. That's because my fear on the flight did not do anything to the flight. The businessman's tranquility on the flight doesn't do anything either. Our demeanor or our posture on the flight has nothing to do with whether we land safely or not. We just sit there. And whether we're fearful or sleeping, it has nothing to do with whether the plane makes it or not. You know who determines if the plane makes it to JFK safely? The captain of the plane. The quality and the perfections and the level of confidence of your faith are not the basis on which God is going to save you. The finished work of Christ determines the fact that you're going to make it. He's the captain of the ship. He's the founder of our salvation. If you're on board, you're going to make it because he's in control. Therefore, when you fear, when you fear your impending death, do not look inwardly at your own faith. There's a lot of that teaching. Look inwardly. Look, on, look what's inside your heart. No, wrong. If you look inside your heart, you'll be discouraged at the weakness and the feebleness of your faith. But rather, look to Christ, who stood in your place, who lived for you, who died for you, who rose again for you. You'll make it safely to the other side if the captain makes it. And our captain is going to make it. Encourage your heart now. And in this new year with verse number 18, right? Hebrews 2, 18 for 2018. From now until the day 
God calls you home. Here's what you and I need. Verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Not only is he going to get you safely to the other side of death if you're in Christ, but he is going to get you through every sin, every problem, every weakness, every trial, every temptation from now until you're home with him. Therefore, all glory be to Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God, thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished for us. Lord, we uh, rejoice in his goodness, his perfection. Father, uh, I pray for uh, myself and anyone here in this room for whom the fear of our impending death, whether it's this year or 50 years from now, when that unsettles us, Father, reassure us with the gospel. Enable us to reassure our hearts by thinking about Christ, by dwelling upon his perfections and knowing that we'll make it because our, our captain has willed it so. We pray all this in his name. Amen.